Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're in Chapter 6 of our group learning program where we're using this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. In this chapter titled The Middle Way, Walking the Middle Way, we learn about this whole teaching and this whole approach that the Buddha discussed as part of his teachings called The Middle Way. There's content here that I'm going to share with you, and it's actually quite a simple teaching. And in its simplicity, it's very profound. Once you learn it and you understand it, this is something that you can apply right away. And you may even be applying some aspect of this already in your life without even realizing it. The Buddha taught this middle way as a way of bringing the mind to the middle so that it can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy as part of this pursuit to enlightenment. And once you attain enlightenment, the mind will permanently reside in the middle, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. One of the ways that he discovered this teaching is that when he first embarked on his journey, he was actually doing all kinds of things to the physical body, inflicting all this pain and hanging himself upside down from trees and laying on beds of nails and starving himself. And there were all these other teachings that Various teachers were sharing about how to kind of disparage the body, cause pain to the body. And what they thought was that by causing pain to the body, if the mind could overcome that pain, then it would get to enlightenment. And the Buddha eventually realized that that wasn't the truth and it's not what leads to enlightenment. But also pursuing these central pleasures or these central desires where the mind is always seeking pleasant feelings, this isn't the middle way either. So the Buddha came to understand this middle way as being in the middle where the mind is not causing pain and doing mortification to the body, but is also not indulging in these central pleasures either. And he called it the middle way. We studied last week the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is the middle way. It shares in each individual aspect of the path about how to develop your practice and how to move forward in your life practice by practicing the middle way. But there's a real subtle teaching here that if you understand it, as I mentioned, you can apply it to your daily life and all aspects of your life. Essentially what the middle way is teaching is that if you hold on to something really, really tightly, like with craving, desire, attachment, with this mental longing and strong eagerness, it's going to cause the mind to be discontent. And conversely, if you were complacent or lazy or lethargic, this is also going to cause the mind to not be able to experience beneficial results in the world. It's going to also be somewhat discontent in that state. So it's only when we move the mind to the middle 
in all areas of our life that we can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. When the mind is practicing the middle way, it can be at ease because it's in the middle. When it's over here holding on really tight, this mental longing and strong eagerness, chasing after the objects of its affection, wanting sensual pleasures, wanting everybody to agree with us, the mind can't be content because as soon as something happens that you disagree with or you don't like or you don't want as part of your life, something that's disagreeable, the mind gets shaken up. But over here, if the mind was complacent or lazy or lethargic, the mind can't benefit and have helpful outcomes in your life because the mind is just too complacent and lazy and kind of lethargic. So it's only when we bring the mind to the middle that the mind can be at ease. And that's what this whole Eightfold Path is about, is on these eight individual steps that the Buddha shares, is how to bring your life practice to the middle, where you're not holding on to things tight, but you're also not complacent either. And we use the seven factors of enlightenment to bring the mind to the middle and kind of fine tune it as we're practicing this Eightfold Path, the seven factors of enlightenment kind of draw the mind into the middle. But this middle way that the Buddha taught, he really kind of looked at this instrument of a lute or a sitar, something similar to that during his lifetime where maybe we might think of a guitar or a mandolin or any kind of stringed instrument that we might know about. When there's a certain instrument that is intended to play really beautiful music, if the string is tuned really, really tight, if somebody clamps down on the string and tunes it in really, really tight and plucks the string, it's not gonna sound right. It's not gonna play beautiful music as this instrument was intended to do. But also if the string is really loose and it's not where it needs to be, essentially the string is too loose and you pluck the string, it's not gonna play beautiful music there either. It's not gonna play the way that it was intended to play. It's only when this string is brought perfectly to the middle and it's optimized and tuned perfectly to the middle that this instrument will play beautiful music. And the Buddha realized that the human mind actually functions the same way, that if you're holding on to things too tight with craving, desire, attachment, the mind's clinging, it has wants, it has expectations, it's chasing after the objects of its affection, it has these strong eagerness for things to be a certain way, the mind's not going to perform well. It's going to get frustrated, irritated, annoyed. It's going to have all these various discontent feelings that we talk about as pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. But also over here, if the mind's kind of lackluster and complacent, it's not going to perform well there either. So this whole practice, this whole path that the Buddha lays out and helps us to understand is as a way of bringing the mind and tuning it to be in the middle so that the mind can function as it was intended to function. It can perform optimally with focus, with concentration, with clarity of mind, and with deep memory. Because when you're holding on to things real tight and the mind's real cluttered with this craving, desire, attachment, with these obsessions of mind, 
then the mind can't perform optimally. It's going to keep being shaken up and experiencing discontentedness. But when it's over here, kind of lackluster and dull and lazy and lethargic, it also doesn't feel right over there either. It's not going to perform well. It's not going to have focus or clarity, concentration or deep memory. But by fine-tuning the mind through this life practice of the Eightfold Path, the mind comes more and more to the middle, and now it can perform optimally. So this is what we're doing as part of this path to enlightenment. And not only does this teaching apply to the Eightfold Path, but it also applies to other aspects of our life. So whether you're involved in financial decisions or where to live or certain career choices or what foods to eat or whether you exercise or not for the physical body, whether you spend time with your children or not, whether you spend time with your life partner or not, all these various decisions in our life, even things like purchasing a car or purchasing new clothes or new shoes, all of these can be looked at as we need to practice the middle way. So for example, if we were spending an enormous amount of time with our life partner and or our children, we were just always, always, always wanting and craving to spend time with them and felt like we just need to pour ourselves into spending time with them. This is going to lead to discontentedness. It's not going to be the middle way. So therefore, the mind is going to struggle and it's not going to feel comfortable. But also over here, if we never spend time with our life partner or our children, then we're not really practicing this middle way. And that's going to cause problems in our life, too. Or if we were in a certain career or a certain profession and we just wanted to pursue this profession so bad and we were so, so, so eager and just pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing, always wanting a promotion, always wanting more money, always wanting more things out of life, that's going to cause discontentedness. But also over here, if we didn't really apply much energy or effort to developing our career and taking care of our clients and ensuring that we're making wise decisions in our careers, that's not going to lead to wholesome results either. It's only when we bring that to the middle. So we can look at so many different aspects of our life. Whereas if we were interested in buying a new car and we just felt like we had to have the newest, hottest, most expensive car that was out there, that's going to lead to discontentedness. But also if we drove around a car that was beat up and broke down every two days and we are sinking a lot of money into it in order to try to maintain it and we're just holding on to this old car because maybe it was one of our family members or someone gave it to us as a gift or something like that, that's not the middle way either. So we can go topic after topic after topic in our life and look at whether or not we're practicing the middle way. And the way that you'll know that you're practicing the middle way is when the mind is at ease, when the mind feels peaceful. That's how you'll know that you're practicing the middle way. When there's discontentedness in the mind, that means the mind's not practicing the middle way. When the mind is dull or lethargic or feeling lazy or complacent, it's not practicing the middle way. And this is where we apply right effort to eliminate these unwholesome qualities arise these wholesome qualities and bring the mind to the middle where it can perform optimally and the mind can be peaceful and at ease. And that's where the mind feels the joy, this unconditioned joy, because once it lands in the middle and it can maintain that for longer and longer periods of time, then the mind will be at ease and there's much joy that it experiences from being in this middle. We use 
terminology today that is very similar to this. If you've ever heard or you've ever spoken, discussed living a balanced lifestyle, this is part of what the Buddha was talking about when he was discussing the middle way is a lot of us might talk about, oh, we've got to live a balanced lifestyle. We've got to live a balanced lifestyle. We've got to live a balanced lifestyle. But what is that balanced lifestyle? Well, it's different for everybody. It's not going to be the same. And the interesting thing is, is that once you find this middle, it actually doesn't stay at that place. You can train the mind to reside in the middle, but in terms of where the middle is, it can be constantly shifting and changing. Let me give you an example about this. Let's say that you are making fairly good income. You have extra savings or money that is available to you and your family. And you've kind of developed this practice of generosity where you give to certain charities. You might give your time, your effort, your energy, and your resources. And this is something that you've become accustomed to of doing over the last two or three years. And that feels like the middle because you're spending time with your family and helping them out, but you're also not just kind of complacent and just kind of watching TV for hours upon hours or playing video games for hours upon hours. You're getting involved in the community and that feels like it's the middle for you and the mind feels peaceful and it's at ease at that. Okay, so the mind has found the middle and maybe you're practicing that for two or three years or, or even longer. But then the mind has to be aware and always be practicing mindfulness or awareness of mind because this middle can shift because of impermanence. Maybe at one time where you were able to give your time, effort, energy, and resources and practicing generosity with different charities, you've been able to do that for two or three years, but now say your life partner gets ill or your children are having trouble at school and they need extra help with their homework, or say that your salary at work shifts and you're not making as much money anymore. Amen, now you need to you know, maybe get another job or you need to adjust your expenses or something. So even though over the last two or three years, this person has found the middle way and their mind is at ease there, being observant of impermanence and as life situation changes, your life partner gets ill, your children need more time at school and you need to help them and kind of tutor them. You can't spend as much time, effort and energy and resources doing the things of charity and practicing generosity as you did, you need to shift and find that new middle. So if you understand the middle way and that the mind will be at ease when you find that middle way and you can practice that, the mind also can't hold on to this thinking that it's permanent because as life situations change in terms of income or sickness or aging or any number of variables in our life that changes, that middle way is going to change. So if you look at this next photo that I have here, this is representing what I would say is the true middle way, where when you first start out on this path and you start finding the middle way, that first part of the path, it looks like, wow, I found the middle, like here it is, the mind is at ease, it feels so peaceful. And you might have found the middle way as it relates to generosity or as it relates to spending time with your family or your friends or your work and the amount of money or the promotions that you need or your car or your house or your clothing or all these different things. It might look like you found the middle way. 
So that first part of the path there, you see it's pretty straight. But then an observant practitioner who's practicing mindfulness and always aware of impermanence in the world, they're going to have to kind of move as variables shift in their life. They're going to have to move along this path and it's going to kind of weave and move. So rather than start on this path and think that you should make a straight line to the middle walking to this mountain and it should just be a straight line to the mountain. In fact, that's not what the middle way is. The middle way is to find that area where the mind is at peace and feels at ease, that you're not holding things real tight, but you're also not complacent. And when you find that on all these various topics in your life, then you be observant of impermanence. And then you kind of ebb and flow with impermanence as you're kind of shifting and moving through the various decisions that you need to make whether it's with your current partner or if you're involved with ex-spouses with children or things like this or your car or your house where maybe when your car was brand new you didn't really have to spend much money to maintain it because it was pretty new and you had found the middle with that but then as this car ages it's going to start requiring more money to maintain it which means you need to reduce your expenses and something else in part of your life in order to maintain that middle. So things are always kind of constantly shifting and changing. And with a mind that's understanding of that impermanence, now you can shift and change and ebb and flow without any discontentedness. Because if you thought you were gonna get on this path, for example, of this picture and walk straight to the mountain, you might actually be making it more difficult for yourself. You might be walking over peaks that are too tall. You might be bumping into trees. You might fall down in a hole that's in the ground. Whereas if you're kind of observant of this impermanence that's happening on this journey to the mountain, then you can kind of take the path of least resistance and kind of ebb and flow and move through this path and actually get to the mountain in as easy a situation as possible. And that's what this picture is representing for you, is that you're going to need to find that middle and then be observant that as things change, you're going to need to shift with it. And at any time that you observe discontentedness in the mind, that's an indication for you that the mind is not in the middle. And when you experience this boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, or any other discontent feelings like that, the mind is not in the middle. When you experience sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, the mind is not in the middle. You need to pull it back to the middle. Even when the mind experiences this happiness, this excitement, this elation, this thrill, this euphoria, this exhilaration, the mind is not in the middle. It's too far to one side and you need to cut that off, let it go and pull it back to the middle where it can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, maintain the stability, maintain the steadiness of mind, and now it can make its way along this path, feeling peaceful and feeling at ease. The path that the Buddha gave us in order to help us find this middle is the Eightfold Path that we talked about last week. If you think about each of these individual steps as individual dials, what you're essentially doing is you're trying to dial in and find the middle with each individual aspect of your life practice. So using something like right speech, for example, which I think is a very great example for us. When we first get on this path, or even when we're off this path, 
we might have hostility, we might have aggression, we might have sarcasm, we might have ways of talking that aren't really the best for our life and the life of the people around us. And that's because the mind is not in the middle. But also, if we really didn't pay attention to this and we were just kind of haphazardly walking through life and not really paying attention to our speech at all, that wouldn't be good for us. But if we beat ourselves up every time that we're not practicing right speech and we feel anger, we feel diminished or we feel like a worthless person whenever we can't practice right speech, that's not good for us either. So what the Buddha is teaching you is he's sharing these teachings on right speech and he's saying this is the middle way and it's going to take time for you to gradually bring your practice into practicing the middle way with something like right speech and all of these aspects of the path. So over here where we observe that, yeah, the mind is producing this speech that's aggressive and harsh and hostile, and I don't like that, and why do I keep doing that? I'm so sarcastic. If you beat yourself up about that and you feel miserable about it and you think you're a terrible person, that's going to diminish the mind and it's going to lead to discontentedness. But also over here, if you were complacent about this path to enlightenment and you really didn't give it any focus or any effort to learn and practice, that's not going to produce beneficial outcomes either. So what you do is you learn these teachings through books, through classes, through videos, podcasts, all these different methods of learning, you know, personal guidance, coming to retreats and things like that. You learn these teachings and then you gradually bring your practice more and more and more and more to the middle. And where you see that you're not practicing the middle way in terms of right speech, then you tweak that and you tweak it and you tweak it until it becomes easier and easier. And then you do the same thing with all of these individual aspects of the path, whether it's right speech, right action, right livelihood, all the different aspects of this path, all eight steps, you tweak it more and more and more. And knowing that aspect of the middle way, you then apply and can apply this same teaching to other parts of your life too. Even though on this Eightfold Path, the Buddha doesn't talk about right finances or right amount of time to spend with your loved ones or your life partner, your children, because that's going to fluctuate. That's going to change. It's impermanent. That's why the Buddha didn't say, okay, the exact amount of time to spend with your children is this many hours. The exact amount of time to spend with your life partner is this many hours because it's impermanent. It's going to constantly be changing. When your children are infants or toddlers, you're going to be spending a lot more time with them because they're new to the world and they can get hurt. They don't know how to make very many wise decisions about their own time and how to take care of themselves. So we spend a lot more time when they're younger. And then as they get older, we spend less and less time, but we've had time to impart wisdom with them. But then if they ran into a difficult situation, even at age 25 or 30, we might end up needing to spend a few days or a week or so with our child and be sure that they have the information that they need. Same thing with our life partners. When we first meet our life partners, maybe we're spending a whole lot of time with them, dating, getting to know them, having all these close conversations, becoming really close with them. And then as time goes on, we spend a little bit less and less and less time with them because early in our relationship, we really needed to spend a lot of time to get to know this person and kind of get in sync with how we're going to operate our life. But then as time goes on, we might spend less and less time with them 
doesn't mean we don't love them or we love them less. It just means that impermanence has come about and we don't need to spend as much time with them. We need to maybe spend time in our career or other aspects of our life. But then as we age, there might be periods of time where one of us gets sick or ill and we need to now spend more time with that person for a week or two or three or a month to help them get back to health. And that's where when you find the middle way, you can find it and the mind will be peaceful and at ease. But then you've got to observe that it changes and it flows in terms of the middle way for the Eightfold Path. Once your mind gets to right speech and you ramp up to that, that's permanent. Once you get to right action and you know exactly where that is, that's permanent. When you get to right livelihood and all these other aspects of the path, once you understand the teaching in detail and you apply it to your life and you bring your practice up to that, it's permanent. And that's one of the reasons why the mind can be at ease because once you're practicing right speech, for example, and the mind knows how to do that effortlessly, the mind can be peaceful and at ease because you've done all this hard work to bring your practice up to right speech. But when you're struggling and you're having difficulties, you're still being aggressive or harsh or sarcastic and all of these other things that we do in the unenlightened state, the mind can't be at ease because the more hostility and sarcasm that we put out, the more of that that comes back to us and people treat us the same way that we treat them. But once you find the middle way on all of these eight steps and you're practicing that consistently, the mind gets to this permanent mental state where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, it can be at ease. And this is where you can be very content with where the mind is. These other decisions like financial, where you spend your time, your job, where you live, what kind of car you're going to drive, all of these different things in your life, those are impermanent. They're going to be constantly changing throughout your life. So you need to find the middle with those and then be observant as things change and ebb and flow with these various changes. And then the last thing that I'll share with you before we open up for any questions you guys might have is something that I wrote about a year, year and a half ago, helping people to understand exactly where the middle is, knowing when the mind isn't there and how to bring it back. I'll just read this to you guys and then it can be part of our discussion today. So you might be asking, you know, where is the middle? If you observe the mind is experiencing happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, euphoria, sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment, etc. Then move the mind to peacefulness, to calmness, to serenity and contentedness with joy. This is the middle where the mind is unaffected by discontent feelings. The mind can reside in the present moment with singleness of mind. This is right concentration. Peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently as one nears closer and closer to enlightenment through training the mind. The mind will be focused, concentrated, have deep memorization with clarity of thought and no discontent feelings. The mind will be at ease. So while one is learning and practicing to attain this mental state permanently, anytime you observe the mind is not in the middle, experiencing discontentedness, 
such as pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, actively apply right effort to eliminate those unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities, to bring the mind to the middle where it resides only in the present moment, letting go of all thoughts, feelings, and emotions that are discontent, bringing the mind to peacefulness, calmness, serenity, and contentedness with joy as the mind can be at ease. Because when the mind is not in the middle, it's not going to be at ease. It's going to feel like things are a struggle. It's going to feel difficult. And when you feel those things, that's the time to really slow down, learn the wisdom, figure out why does it feel like I'm walking through the mud and why are things so difficult? If things are feeling difficult for you, that's because the mind's not in the middle. When the mind is in the middle, things will be at ease. Things will be peaceful. An enlightened mind is still going to experience challenges, right? Maybe a tree falls on your house or maybe your car breaks down or maybe something else happens in your life. An enlightened being is still going to experience these things happening, but they're going to recognize all of this stuff is impermanent and they're just going to apply wise decision making to resolve these situations. They're going to have things that are going to happen. There's going to still be impermanence in the world that is constantly happening in their life, but their mind isn't shaken up by this impermanence. They remain calm. They can practice mindfulness or awareness of mind. They can have concentration or this singleness of mind, and then they can access wisdom in order to make wise decisions to bring this impermanence back to a situation that is beneficial. So if a tree falls on your house, if the person's mind is attached to the house, then maybe there's crying, there's upset, maybe there's fear, maybe there's worry. But for an enlightened being, if they observe a tree falling on their house, they just know that that's impermanence. Everybody's safe. Okay, let's just hire some people to cut the tree up. Let's hire some people to fix the roof and fix the walls. And in a matter of a few weeks or a few months, all of this will be resolved and the house will be safer. The tree's going to be gone. And while we're at it, why don't we just look around the yard and see if there's any other trees that might be getting ready to fall as well. Why we have the person here cutting up the trees, let's kind of look around and see if there's any other trees that we potentially need to take down so that this doesn't happen again. So these same two situations, a tree falling on a person's house can happen for an unenlightened being and happen for an enlightened being, but they're going to relate to this situation and they're going to address this situation very differently. An enlightened mind is going to get shaken up. It's going to have lots of fear. It's going to have difficulties trying to figure out how to resolve the situation. It's going to be unsettled and unstable, unsteady. An enlightened mind is going to see the same situation and just calmly figure out how to solve this impermanence that has come to visit you. This tree that fell on your house, this is just impermanence coming to visit you. So you just figure out, okay, how do I resolve this situation and make it better? Because while the house being whole was impermanent, that this tree fell on it, the tree falling on it and the house being damaged, that's also impermanent too. If I just make some wise decisions here, I can get the tree off. I can hire somebody to 
fix the roof. I can hire someone to fix the wall and we can solve this because that's in permanent as well. So let me just open up the rest of the class to all of you. This is all I was going to share with you in terms of the teachings of the middle way. As I said, it's very simple, but when you apply it in practice, this is where it becomes very impactful and it can be very profound. What I'd like to open up to you guys is not just questions about the middle way and learning what the middle way is and how to practice this more and more, but if there are certain situations that you have in your life right now and you're not quite sure where the middle is, you can share a bit about that situation and I can help you kind of look at where the middle might be. Only you will know truly where the middle is. And the way that you'll know that is that the mind will be at ease. But through hearing the description of the challenge or the situation that you're facing, I can kind of point to some things for you to consider to kind of look at bringing any particular situation to the middle way. One of the things that the mind oftentimes is not practicing the middle way on is something like the path to enlightenment. Oftentimes, once people first find out about the path to enlightenment, there can be lots of craving, desire, attachment wanting to get this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy and craving it with this strong eagerness, having this obsession with getting to enlightenment. And as long as the mind continues to do that, it won't experience enlightenment. But there's also people in the world that are very complacent, lethargic, lackluster, almost lazy, kind of sluggish about attempting to learn or practice in such a way that would lead to enlightenment. So the middle for the path to enlightenment is to be determined, dedicated, and diligent in actively learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings. I talk about this like an IV, like if you've ever been hooked up to IV fluids in the hospital or at a doctor's office, it's just drip, drip, drip. This is what you're doing by attending classes once or twice a week. Some people have moved to three times a week. This is what you're doing by maybe reading this book, maybe 10 or 15 minutes a day, rather than sitting down and reading two hours at a time, these big doses of information, taking this big bite and chewing on it and chewing on it and chewing on it and making it really hard to digest. But rather than not reading it at all, you find that middle where you're just kind of reading 10, 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes a day. And you just do that little by little each day. And that's what gradually builds up your wisdom because as you learn through the book, 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, you take these little small bites and now you spend the next day or so trying to implement that and kind of work with that skillfully. Same thing with your meditation practice. When you hear me say, okay, Developing a meditation practice, the ultimate goal is two to three sessions a day for 30 minutes or more per session. Well, if somebody runs out and tries to crank up their meditation practice to that right away, as soon as they hear that, that's craving desire attachment. It's going to be really hard for the mind to do that in a lot of cases. But also if you're like, ah, you know, once every three or four days is enough, that's fine. I'll just do once every three or four days that's not going to produce the results either. So you find this middle in your middle is going to be very different than someone else's middle. Someone else might be able to start with two or three times a day for 
10, 15 minutes. And that's where they're at in their life. Maybe they're retired. Maybe they don't have children. Maybe their children have moved on in life. Maybe they're a little bit older. So they have more time to kind of apply more sessions and a longer amount of sessions. But they're still working to two or three times a day for 30 minutes or longer. If you're a single dad or a single mom, you're working, you have children. Maybe all you can do is like once a day for five minutes or 10 minutes. And that's where you are. And that's your middle right now. But what you would like to do is gradually move this to two or three times a day, 30 minutes or more. But when you are able to do that, whether it's today, next month, next year, two years from now, when your kids get older or what have you, that's a personal choice. That's where it comes down to your own independent practice of you finding that middle and then staying there and kind of ebbing and flowing with it. And that's why you can't compare one practitioner's practice to another practitioner's practice and judge each other of who's further along in their practice or who's not because everybody's at a different point in their practice and what's the middle for one person is different for the middle for another person and this is why we can't judge and evaluate and measure and compare one person to the other so once you find this middle the mind will be at ease it will be peaceful but then you kind of gradually observe the impermanence and kind of ebb and flow with it as you need to, as it relates to this middle way for developing your practice to attain enlightenment. And then you can apply that same thing to other aspects of your life as well. So let me open things up to any questions that you guys have related to what we've discussed so far today. And remember, if you have a certain situation that you'd like to discuss where you feel like maybe you're practicing the middle way, but you'd just like to confirm or check in on that, or if you're having challenges to find where is the middle and you would like to kind of talk that out a bit, feel free to put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will see that and we can use your example as discussion for the class to help you guys learn more. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and share directly or ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. And we'll have a really nice discussion around this so that you can take this very simple teaching and apply it and have this profound benefit to your practice. I'm glad that you mentioned the middle way in regards to approaching the teachings because I think that it seems like in life there's oftentimes this idea that if we want to pursue something and receive the benefits of it, then we just throw ourselves into it. But what you're saying is to take a more moderate approach. And would you say that even if we feel that the amount that we're dedicating to studying and meditating, if we feel content with that, but it's at a high level, do you think that there's any situation where one would preemptively pull back a bit to perhaps avoid burnout or something of that nature? Yeah, I'm, that's interesting that you use that term because I was planning to use that too, is this burning out, right? We talk about this in our modern language. What people are burning out is they're burning out their craving, desire, attachment. So that's extinguishing the fire, right? The craving, anger, and ignorance. So if somebody is going into something and they have this craving, desire, attachment, they just pursue it and pursue it and pursue it through craving, desire, attachment, eventually that's going to burn out and they're going to let that go and they're going to move on to something else. So for example, I used to play mandolin 
and I was really interested in playing mandolin and I was in America and I was really interested in playing this Thai instrument that was similar to the mandolin, but I couldn't learn that in America. It was easier to learn the mandolin. So I got really into the mandolin and I bought like two different mandolins. Uh, at that time, I was making a lot of money as a business person. I spent a lot of money on mandolin. I went traveling to different places. I took private lessons. I started this group of people that we would all come together and play mandolin together. On the weekends, I would go to these what they call jams, like a bluegrass jam, or and we would all kind of play music together. And I was just pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and going down this path because I had this desire, I had this craving to play this instrument. And eventually I got to a point where that burned out. And I was just like, ah, I'm not gonna play this anymore. And it kind of fizzled out. And you might have seen that in your life on multiple different things, whether it was rollerblading or roller skating or playing jump rope or swimming or any kind of activities that you were have been doing over the course of your life. You might have had this real passion, almost this obsession with certain activities and you just push, 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 push in that direction. Eventually, the craving fizzles out. It burns out and then you kind of give it up. Well, this also happens in our relationships, whereas if you meet somebody new, you can get this obsession, this craving, this desire, and you can push and push and push and spend all this time with this person. And then you get to a certain point, a year, two years down the road, and it fizzles out. The craving has been extinguished. You feel like the love is gone, and they might feel like the love is gone, but it actually, that part of it wasn't love. That was actually the craving desire attachment of holding on to this person and pursuing the relationship so aggressively that it eventually burned out and it fizzled out. Or same thing with a job or a profession. If you've had a certain job that you've pursued and you've just pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and you went down that path and maybe you got this new job and after six months, a year, two years, it just fizzled out and you didn't have the same passion in this job that you once had. Well, the reason why is because when you started off with that job, you had craving desire attachment, and now you've burned out that craving desire attachment, and now the mind feels bored, and it doesn't feel like this job is engaging anymore because it's not producing the same pleasant feelings that it once did when you were pursuing it with craving desire attachment. It was producing all these pleasant feelings. Well, now, that the craving desire attachment is so strong and those pleasant feelings are temporary. Now at work, you start hating this job and you think it's the worst job ever because now the painful feelings have come in or that craving desire attachment burns out and now you don't feel like you have the same passion for the job anymore. And it's just because when you started it, you were pushing and pursuing with such craving desire attachment that it fizzled out and it burned out. We do this with certain hobbies and activities. We do this with relationships. We do this with jobs. We do this with all kinds of different things in our life. And if you look back over your life, you're probably going to see a lot of situations where you've done this with. But if you're in a job where you feel like, oh, wow, this is like outstanding. I, I really respect my boss. I feel like this is a great place to work. I enjoy working with the coworkers. Sure, there's a, a few people that are a little bit more challenging to work with, but I really enjoy the type of work that I'm doing and I'm gradually moving forward and putting forth effort in this job and in this workplace. 
that could be the middle for you if you the mind feels content and peaceful there if you have a certain relationship that maybe you started out and it was craving desire attachment and you were pushing 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 but maybe you've kind of backed that off a little bit and now you just feel peaceful and content in that relationship where if you spend time with the person wonderful that's great you enjoy spending time with them but if you don't spend time with them that's okay too you don't miss them you're not worried about them you're not fearful about what's happening with them when you're not with them you just feel okay and you feel content then in that relationship you may be practicing the middle way so whether it's your practice of pursuing this path to enlightenment or whether it's your job or your relationships if you start off with this craving desire attachment and just pushing 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 and trying to pursue with all this strong eagerness and this obsession eventually that's going to burn out and you might feel like you just would like to give up on that thing because you're no longer deriving the same pleasant feelings that you did when you were pursuing it with craving desire attachment so when you start off on these new journeys whether it's with the path to enlightenment or a relationship or a new job or any particular thing in your life you'd like to restrain the mind and pull it back and find this middle from the beginning so that as you walk this middle way, the mind can be peaceful and at ease and you know where that middle way is and then you won't crush it. You won't burn out because there's no craving to begin with. You can just gradually pursue this your whole life, a certain aspect of your life. So like the Buddha, he attained enlightenment at the age of 35, but for 45 more years, he shared these teachings into the world. He didn't burn out because he didn't have craving or desire to share the teachings. Had he been doing this out of craving and desire, had he been sharing these teachings because he wanted to be famous or he wanted to be wealthy or he wanted to be rich or he wanted to be well-known or he had this craving and desire to help everyone in the world and he just felt like he had to fix everybody in the world and he had this craving to do it and he was looking for some pleasant feelings as a result of sharing these teachings he would have burned out he would have burned out that craving desire attachment and given up because this activity of sharing these teachings no longer produces the same pleasant feelings which is what he would have been after had he been sharing these with craving desire attachment if the mind extinguishes craving desire attachment the mind's going to eventually want to give that up and let that go and feel like ah i'm not getting the same pleasant feelings out of that anymore i'm not interested in doing it anymore so you've got to find that middle way just like the buddha did with these teachings where he shared these teachings consistently and methodically over the course of his life where ultimately it culminated into helping billions and billions and billions of people in the world but had he tried to do that with craving desire attachment it wouldn't have worked or had he been complacent and not applied any dedication and effort it wouldn't have worked either so even a buddha doing something like sharing these teachings into the world you have to always find that middle way where you're consistently kind of methodically like that iv just drip 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 moving forward in your life and doing the things that you need to do with your life partners your children your job and everything else that you've got going on in your life including this path if you were studying eight hours a day ten hours a day 
for multiple days and weeks at a time, eventually that's going to burn out. But what you will find, getting to James's question, what you will find is that maybe when you first start this path, you just have a little bit of time here and there that you're devoting to it and that you're able to allocate towards this path. But then as you start seeing more and more benefits and you start getting things in your life kind of situated where your relationships aren't as difficult and you're not struggling as much in different parts of your life, you can kind of open up more and more time if you choose to spend time dedicated to learning these teachings and practicing them. So it's not that if you spend 12 hours a day that you're automatically doing that with craving. And if you spend 30 minutes a day, you're complacent. You can't look at it that way because everybody's middle's different. For me, I spend an enormous amount of time every single day writing books, helping students, teaching classes, my own practice of meditation, skillfully helping family members and other people to progress on this path. So my life is dedicated to practicing this path for myself and sharing with other people. But there's also time that I find for rest and relaxation, spending time with family and friends and things like this. So you can't say that, okay, this person spends 12 hours a day dedicated to this path, therefore that's craving, desire, attachment. Where this person spends 30 minutes, so therefore that's complacency. Because everybody's middle is different. This person who's spending 30 minutes a day, that might be a lot of time for them. If they're a single mom with two or three kids or a single dad with two or three kids, getting that 30 minutes a day, that might be the middle for them right now. And that's pretty much what they can do. It's not craving and it's not complacency, but that's a really important 30 minutes for them. And that might be the middle for that person where somebody else who's created more space in their life and things are a bit more calm and they can spend maybe four hours or six hours and they're doing that consistently uh, without craving desire attachment, that might be the middle for that person. So the middle is going to be different for each person and then it's gonna fluctuate at different times. So it sounds like if our pursuits are motivated by craving then given impermanence, eventually that craving is going to disappear and then our intention to pursue these things is also going to fade. So it seems that we're so trained, however, to be motivated by craving and pursuing our goals. So I was wondering, well, what is a better way to frame our motivation? Is it to have an interest or something of that nature? Yeah, so in the unenlightened state, the mind doesn't really know of any other way. The only way it knows to pursue things in life is through craving, desire, attachment. And we just push and push and push the saying, you know, put the nose to the grindstone, right? These kind of things. This is built into some cultures that the mind has been taught to put the nose to the grindstone. And if you sit for five minutes and take a breather, that you're lazy, right? You got to push, 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 push. This is actually craving desire attachment. And that is unhealthy for the mind, but the unenlightened mind doesn't know any other way because it's been conditioned to function this way. And then there's some people in the world in those same exact cultures who are complacent or lackluster or lethargic or lazy and don't really apply any effort to improving their life either. And that is going to cause problematic situations in their life as well. So this middle in terms of pursuing this path to enlightenment 
or really any particular aspects of your life is to pursue things as a goal, pursue it as an interest, and pursue it as something that you're looking to achieve as an objective. Where when you put a whole lot of fire, a whole lot of aggression, a whole lot of obsession behind something, that's going to be craving, desire, attachment. But if you don't put forth any effort either, then that's that complacency that we're talking about. So with each individual aspect of your life, whether it's family life, whether it's your profession, whether it's learning and practicing these teachings, whether it's taking care of your own physical health, your own mental health, all these different things that we do in life, you've got to find that middle and pursue it as a goal, as an objective, and as an interest. And in doing so, then the mind can be at ease because it's not wanting things so strongly and so fiercely, but it's also not lackluster and just kind of complacent about things either. Let's kind of have a question from Adrian now. Could the middle way also be considered the neutrality? And should we meditate purposefully to obtain the middle way? When you're meditating, you're working on getting to the middle way. The middle way isn't necessarily neutrality. I don't know what we mean by that word neutrality. You're welcome to add a definition to what you think about that. But when I think about neutrality, I think about it as like disinterested or without any kind of thoughts about what's going on, just kind of like numb almost, right? That's not what the middle way is. It's not feeling numb to situations. It's not being indifferent or uncaring. What it is is understanding that pursuing things so eagerly and so aggressively is just someone's wants and it's going to eventually burn out and you can't sustain that level of push, 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 push. But also over here, if you didn't apply any effort or energy to the things you've got going on in your life and all the different aspects of things that you need to address in your life, that wouldn't be healthy either. So you've got to find that middle where the mind is addressing different things in your life, whether it's profession, family life, this path to enlightenment, your own physical health and things like this, where you're applying effort and energy to it, but you're doing it consistently on an ongoing basis, gradually, rather than push, 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 forcing things, trying to control things, or rather than just be like, eh, I don't care, whatever happens, happens. You know, that's not going to produce beneficial results either. So you've got to find that middle where you can just gradually pursue things, making wise decisions along the way. Adrian clarified neutrality as not taking a position on anything one way or another, but still working from the Dhamma. You can take positions on things. You can have opinions. You can have certain things that you feel are important. That's part of gaining wisdom and having certain wisdom. You're going to have certain opinions. The challenge is, is when you hold on to those opinions and views really tightly. And now if someone disagrees with you, now the mind becomes discontent because of it. So while you may have opinions and views on different things, you have to also understand this universal truth of impermanence that not everyone's going to agree with your opinion. And you have to also understand without arrogance that your opinion isn't necessarily the right answer, that there's multiple right answers in the world. So while you have opinions and views and that's what's working for you, it doesn't mean that it's going to work for everybody. So we shouldn't feel that we need to push 
or force our opinions and views on other people. If someone asks for your opinion or someone asks for your advice or someone asks for a suggestion from you, then yeah, you can share that with them and share them with them your opinion and your view, knowing the whole time that there's a good chance that they're going to disagree with you. And then if they disagree with you, that's okay because you just recognize it as impermanence. But if you have certain opinions and views and you try to force this onto people without them asking you, that's craving desire attachment. But also if you were over here and you were complacent and you saw somebody struggling in life and you didn't maybe make an offer, then the mind is kind of indifferent, right? So you might say, would you like a suggestion of how to improve that? And if they're like, sure, what's your suggestion? And then you share that. They may accept it, they may not, they may disagree. Uh, so if you don't have an expectation of what the results should be, then you can just know that you shared your opinion and view. They said, yes, they're interested in hearing it. So you shared it and they were open to it. Whereas if you say, would you like some help and some advice on how to resolve that? And they say, no, I'm not. Then, okay, then you're fine. Because if you have craving, desire, attachment, and you ask somebody, would you like some advice on that? And they say, no, I'm not interested. If you get angry, that's because you had a craving and desire to share something with them. Whereas if you say, would you like help with that? And they say, no, I'm not interested. Your mind can be peaceful if they say yes or if their mind says no, because you're not attached to any particular outcome. So you can help people in the world, but you have to be sure that they're open to your advice and you can have opinions and you can have views, but just don't hold on to them and cling to them so tightly. As a follow-up to Adrian's question, I've often heard the advice about going for the flow and going with the flow and not forcing things in life. Is that in some sense what the middle way is all about? Yeah, you can go with the flow, but at the same time, you still are going to have certain opinions and views and certain decisions that you make. So like the example I gave, I think last class, James, with you is where if you were in a group of people and you guys were all going out to the movies and it was a bunch of single guys and you're like the only married guy and you guys go out to the movies and you're enjoying the movie together, you have dinner together and then after dinner, guys are like, oh, let's go out to the mall and like flirt with some girls and find some some girlfriends. And you're like, hey guys, um, have fun or whatever you say or you know, I'm going to be over here at the library or I'm going to go shoe shopping. You guys go have fun or whatever, you know, whatever you choose to do. There's 10 million right answers there, but you're not going to go with the flow in that situation. You're going to be like, OK, sure, let's go flirt because, you know, you have a wife and that wouldn't be wise for you. So you're going to always be operating within this wisdom of the Buddhist teachings. And while we say go with the flow, yes, you can go with the flow and not hold on to things really tightly. But there's going to be certain things that you know, like, yeah, I'm not going to get involved in that. You know, I'm not interested in killing people. I'm not interested in stealing. I'm not interested in sexual misconduct. I'm not interested in lying. I'm not interested in substances that cause heedlessness. I'm not interested in arguing with people. I'm not interested in being hostile and aggressive. You know, all these different things that are part of this path, you're going to be able to know with real wisdom, eh, yeah, I'm interested in practicing this way. I'm not interested in practicing that way. And what the Buddha is sharing with you is what that middle way is that isn't going to cause harm to others. And then you just kind of navigate that in the way that you feel is best. 
But there are going to be situations where you are going with the flow, so to speak. Maybe when you show up to the movies with all those single guys, maybe you had the idea like you would like to watch Batman. And then when you show up, the other guys are interested in watching Superwoman. And you're like, okay, yeah, let's watch Superwoman. If you were holding on to Batman, then your mind's going to be discontent the whole time. And you're going to maybe be trying to force these guys to now watch Batman. Whereas if you just go with the flow and you realize the real purpose of this event is to spend time with your buddies, then you can be content with Batman. You can be content with Superwoman. It doesn't really matter to you. You can just go with the flow in that situation. But there's going to be other situations where if certain people are interested in doing certain things, then you just know with the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, yeah, I'm not going to get involved in that. And you'll just make wise decisions as a result. Thank you, David. Let's go to Danny now. Uh, hi, teacher David. Um, can the middle way be also be interpreted as the um, a balanced way? Yeah, this is language that we use nowadays. Is like living a balanced lifestyle. But there's no predetermined template of what a balanced lifestyle looks like. That balanced lifestyle is going to look different for you versus Bossom versus Nick versus Marion versus Chrissy. Every single person is going to have a different way of being. A balanced lifestyle is what the Buddha is calling the middle way. But what that looks like for one person is going to be different than what it looks like for another person. So I know like in your situation, you have a young child and maybe you need to spend a lot of time with your young child and kind of ensuring that she has certain wisdom that she needs growing up. And that's important for you where someone else whose kids are maybe 14, 16 or older, maybe those individuals, they don't spend as much time with their children. And it's not that you're right and they're wrong or they're right and you're wrong. It's just that a balanced lifestyle for both of you are different because there's not this standard template of what a balanced lifestyle is in terms of decisions like spending time with family or friends or financial decisions or things like this. There is this standard template about the middle way in terms of training the mind along the Eightfold Path. That is a standard template that the more deeply you understand that and you learn it, you can practice that very deeply. But even still, something like right speech, we have those five factors of well-spoken speech that we speak at the right time. What we say is true. We speak gentle, beneficially and with a mind of loving kindness. That's the general guidance. But the word choice that Donnie uses versus the word choice that I use versus what other people use, our word choices and our phrasings are all going to be different. That's what our personality is. That's what our character is. That's from our experiences in life. That's how we're all going to end up practicing with different word choices and different phrasing and different ways of interacting through our speech. But even though your word choices and my word choices are very different and the phrases we use are very different, if somebody were to look at this, you can see, oh, Donnie speaks at the right time. What he says is true. It's gentle. It's beneficial. And it's with loving kindness. But it just is different words than what David's choosing to use. But then when we look at David, oh, David's practicing those same things too, but just through different words. So the answer to your question is yes, a balanced lifestyle is the middle way. But we shouldn't think that there's a standard template of things like how much time to spend with friends or family or 
financial decisions because these things are impermanent and they're going to be constantly changing. The only real standard template in terms of the middle way is this eightfold path. This is going to be the same for all practitioners, but then how we all choose to practice that path is going to look different in terms of individual things like our word choices, our phrasings, our personalities, and things like that. We have an example from Adrian. I'm a retired social worker. One of the reasons I retired was because the things I saw and dealt with became too painful, and they still are sometimes. I was very good at helping people, and though I have made a difference in some people's lives, I used to get the high-profile clients. I'm extremely compassionate to abuse, neglect, addiction, and what all it does to children and families. It's hard for me to turn it off, and I find that the only way I can deal with it sometimes is to isolate myself from the world. I want to continue my compassion, though not through social work, and helping, but how do I do so without it taking such a toll on me? Okay, so this is a good example where craving desire attachment even with things like loving kindness and compassion it's going to lead to discontentedness so you've got to find the middle way even with practicing loving kindness and compassion whereas if we were over here we were indifferent and we didn't care what happened to other beings that would be complacency that would be one side of the spectrum but if we're over here where we're trying to hold on to it too tightly and we want to help everybody and every single person we talk to, we feel like we should be able to improve their life and make a difference in their life, that's going to cause discontentness because we're holding on to it too tightly that if we see any amount of misery or despair in the world, then the mind becomes discontent because you want everybody to be helped and you want everybody to be well. So it's a great thought that, yeah, I would love to see everybody in the world be peaceful and be well taken care of and be fed and have medical supplies and have shelter and clothing and food. These are wonderful things to feel and think and cultivate in the mind. But when you see that that's not happening, if the mind has craving, desire, attachment, that's where it's going to cause its discontentedness because it's holding on to loving kindness and compassion too tightly. But also over here, if we did nothing, and we didn't really take any action to help others, then that's not going to feel right either. So you've got to realize that you can help people. You can be there for people. You can be beneficial to people. You can practice loving kindness and compassion, but you've got to find that middle way, realizing that you're only going to be able to help certain people a certain amount, and not every single person that you come in contact with is going to be receiving of your help or interested in your help, or able to really benefit from your help. And there's going to be a countless number of beings in the world that need help. So you're not going to be able to help everybody. You can only do what you can do as an individual. So letting go of holding on to, to loving kindness and compassion so tightly will allow the mind to move to the middle, but also not allowing it to dwell in complacency where it has no interest in helping others either that's not going to be beneficial. So you've got to find this middle. And the interesting thing about the unenlightened mind, because it's so used to operating through this craving, desire, attachment, or maybe it's complacent in certain situations, is as you're trying to find the middle, the mind oftentimes will overshoot it. So 
if you've been used to practicing not just Adrian's example, but any other thing in your life for all the people that are hearing this teaching, if you've been practicing something with craving, desire, attachment, and you're starting to let that go and try to move the mind to the middle, don't be surprised if the mind overshoots the middle and swings over here closer to complacency and laziness. And it feels like it can't really do the things that it used to do because it was so used to pursuing things with craving, desire, attachment. When it lets go, it doesn't really know where that middle is and it actually swings too far past the middle. And it kind of comes over here where it starts to feel indifferent and complacent. And now you've kind of got to realize that and now bring it a little bit more to the middle. And then it starts leaning back towards a little bit of craving again. And then you realize that it's there and you swing it back here and swing it back here. It's almost like a pendulum where it's kind of swinging back and forth and you just kind of gradually narrow in more and more and more to the middle. And then when it's stable, when it's steady, that's when you know the mind is in the middle when it's at ease. And you can help people, Adrian, and you can apply help, but you realize you can't help everybody. That if you're craving to help people, it's going to produce discontentedness. I suppose it's also important that we don't crave for the middle way in some sense, would you say? Yeah, the middle way is enlightenment, the peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If you're craving that, it's going to be hard to find it because you're always over here. You're craving it. You have to let go of craving enlightenment in the middle way and realize that, okay, let me just gradually, consistently, on an ongoing basis, attend these classes, read this book, maybe listen to some videos, some podcasts, maybe reach out for some personal guidance as needed, build up my meditation practice, and just gradually consistently work at this little by little and kind of chip away at it. You know, going back to an analogy I was using last week about this sculpture, you know, if you have this masterpiece that you're, you're looking to create this masterpiece of an artwork, this sculpture, your life work, and you get the most beautiful piece of wood and you're not interested in just plowing through this piece of wood. You're going to just kind of delicately, lightly, gradually work through this piece of wood using a saw, using a hatchet, maybe an axe, maybe a couple of different knives, maybe a couple of different tools. You're just going to gradually kind of whittle away at this, all working towards this masterpiece that gets produced maybe 5, 10, 15 years from now, where, okay, the mind finally is moving more and more and more. But you should notice within a few weeks and a few months, if you're learning the truth and you're really uh, working in that direction, you should be seeing progress gradually along the way. But just know that this is a masterpiece. You're working on this path to become a better human being. And that takes time. And then just gradually, consistently, on an ongoing basis, work towards that goal not holding it too tight and push, 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 but also not being complacent either. It seems like there's often this instance where we may feel guilty. That's just how we come up. If we overshoot the middle way, we feel guilty. If we're not reaching it, we feel like we're failing in some way. But is it really just about enjoying this journey of self-improvement in some sense? Yeah, we can say enjoying this journey of self-improvement, but you know, when you're down there in anxiety and stress and despair and depression, it feels quite miserable. 
But that's where I say, use that as motivation to get the mind out of that. When you're experiencing those disconsent feelings, particularly the painful ones, that's the time to really go within and be like, okay, I'm not interested in repeating this over again. What is it that caused this painful feeling? Ah, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my husband, wife, we broke up. I was holding on too tight. Ah, now I feel lonely. Now I feel bored. Now I feel angry. I feel frustrated. Okay, let me work on this. Don't run out and try to get another boyfriend right away or another girlfriend. That's what the NLA mind wants to do. It thinks that the problem is that, ah, the reason why my mind is painful is because I don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm craving, I'm clinging. I need another boyfriend and girlfriend. As soon as I have that, now the mind will be fixed because I need this external thing to solve the problem of the discontent mind. And then people will go out. We call this a rebound where you go from one relationship to another and you cling to that new relationship thinking that's going to solve all the problems. But in reality, now your mind's clinging and craving, sabotaging this relationship and creating more and more problems where whenever you experience discontentedness, particularly those painful feelings that you feel real miserable down in the dumps, instead of beating yourself up, instead of making yourself feel even more miserable, instead go in, go internal, look inward and look at what wisdom am I missing that is leading to this discontentedness because there's something that the mind hasn't learned yet that it needs to learn in order to let go. There's some craving desire attachment. There's some impermanence that has been experienced that the mind does not like. And if you can uncover what those things are and bring the mind to the middle, then when you choose six months, a year, two years, three years to maybe have another partner your mind is in a better situation and you know not to pursue this relationship with craving, desire, attachment, but instead gradually get to know this person where you can be content and peaceful when you're with them, but you can also be content and peaceful when you're not with them either. That's where the mind's liberated. When the mind is holding on to these things so tightly, wanting certain things, and when it has it, ah, I feel all these pleasant feelings. And when it doesn't have it, ah, I feel miserable. That's when the mind's not liberated. So you work at uncovering what is it that's causing these painful feelings? What craving desire attachments? What is the mind holding on to? What does the mind want to be permanent? What is the impermanence that I'm experiencing that has shaken up the mind? And when you can uncover what that is, then you can let those things go and bring the mind to the middle where it can be peaceful and content. But you need that, of course, that meditation practice continually going on so that you can more and more clean up the mind. So rather than pushing away the discontent that we may feel, it's best to use it as an indicator in some sense. Yeah, we're going to be talking about this when we get further into this book. I have a chapter on this, but you're interested in cutting off and letting go of this discontentedness. You're interested in cutting off and letting go of these pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. But oftentimes that's easier said than done, especially early in practice, because the mind isn't yet trained of how to let go. But while you're either feeling the discontentedness, or even when the mind comes out of the discontentedness, you should always look inward and try to figure out what was the mind craving? What was it desiring to be permanent? 
What is the impermanence that the mind just experienced that has caused it to be shaken up in this way? And when you can uncover that, then you can resolve it. So I'm going to talk in a, what is it, about another five or six weeks about the red light on your dashboard. The discontentedness is the red light on your dashboard that is alerting you that there's some craving desire attachments that are producing this discontentedness. And what do you do when the red light comes on in the dashboard of your car? You pull over, you pop the hood, and you investigate. Is it the oil? Is it the coolant? What is it? What's going on? Let me investigate this problem so I can resolve it. So the same thing is when the mind is discontent, that's the red light. And you kind of have to pull over, look inward, go into the mind and investigate what is the craving desire attachments that are causing it. Because anytime the mind is discontent, you should automatically know it's craving desire attachment. Always. It's always, always, always going to be craving some kind of permanence. And now the mind has experienced impermanence and it doesn't like that. So we know what the problem is, that it's craving desire attachment. But what is the specific problem? Is it holding on to boyfriend, girlfriend? Is it holding on to the kids? Is it craving to help people? Is it craving to look a certain way and project a certain image to the public? Is it that somebody broke my grandmother's favorite dish that she gave me and I was holding on and craving to hold on to that dish and now it broke? And now the mind doesn't like that impermanence. What was it that it was holding on to? It's always going to be craving, desire, attachment, but figuring out which individual craving, desire, attachments that the mind is holding on to allows you to uncover what are the actual individual craving, desire, attachments. So when that red light comes on in your car, you know it's going to be a problem somewhere in the car. It's either going to be the oil, the coolant, the starter, something, right? It's always going to be some particular mechanism in the car. But you know it's something under that hood or underneath of the car that the problem. So you search that car. So same thing with the mind is we know that the problem is craving, desire, attachment. So we search this mind and figure out what's the exact cravings, desires, attachments that are causing this discontentedness. And then once you eliminate those, that's where you can then bring the mind to the middle and it will never experience discontentedness on those specific topics ever again once you eliminate those specific craving, desires, attachments. Adrian followed up with the comment, that is so hard sometimes when you're a parent. And I was wondering, based on this, if you have any advice for people who may be parents and they're trying to walk the middle way through parenthood. Yeah, some of the most difficult attachments to eliminate and learn how to practice non-attachment are your life partners, your parents, and your children. These are the people that are the closest to you. These are the people that the mind is typically most attached to, and it takes the most work to typically let go of craving desire attachments in these relationships. We're going to be discussing this as part of chapter 15, which is called True Love, practicing love without attachment. And we're going to dive into relationships about how to have more harmonious relationships. And the retreat that we're planning in America in June of 2022, the whole theme of that entire retreat is harmony in relationships. And there's going to be multiple talks about how to practice more harmonious relationships and letting go of 
attachments in your relationships. Some general advice right now is just don't force things. If you have children, you need to understand that you're not permanent in their life and you shouldn't be attempting to force them to make certain decisions. You can guide them, you can encourage them, you can lay out path for them, and then you can help them make wise decisions because what you're really trying to do as a parent is you're trying to impart wisdom into this human being that can gradually choose to learn that wisdom. And whether you're with them or whether you're away from them, they operate with that same wisdom and they can make wise decisions. But if you're trying to force your way with your children, they're not going to accept that. They're going to reject it because they don't like things being forced on them. And if you're constantly making decisions for them, then they don't ever gain the wisdom that they need in order to make wise decisions. The challenge for parents is that when we have children that are 10 or 15 or 20 years old or any age, we're older, of course. We can see 10 miles down the road. We can see 100 miles down the road. We can see all the problems they're headed for because we experience those same problems ourselves, and we learn from those problems. That child at age 10 or 15 or 20, they can't see the problems because they don't have the same amount of wisdom as you. So where things come really easy for you and you can see for sure they're headed for problems, they don't see it themselves. So you can try to guide them, you can try to help them, you can try to encourage them, but ultimately in some cases, it's actually better to just let go and allow them to experience those challenges so that they can then gain the same wisdom that you gained through those particular challenges. Now, if there are certain issues where it's going to have devastating effects in their life, the Buddha talks about restraining our children from evil. So if, for example, my son was 15 years old, he's not, but if he was, and he had friends that were drinking and using drugs, and he was doing those same things or interested in doing those same things or started doing those same things, our goal as a parent is to restrain them from evil. This is going to drastically affect their life. We need to take immediate action to resolve this, right? And make sure that they're not ingesting these substances and it's going to just cause havoc in their life. But if they just choose to be around a friend who maybe talks not kind or not polite every once in a while, or someone who's in some things that you maybe disagree with that are just disagreements, they're not something that's going to cause major havoc in their life. If you try to force them to not be with those friends just based on what you see as problematic, then that's going to cause problems because your children are going to feel like you're forcing things on them. So when it's time to deal with these real big things, they're not going to be as open and receptive to your advice if you're trying to always force them with these little things. So you guide, you impart wisdom, you help them along the way, but you do so with non-attachment where you just kind of let go. And in certain situations, you let them stumble, you let them trip, right? You can tell your child to tie their shoe a million and one times, and they keep forgetting to tie their shoe. But let them trip on their shoelaces a couple of times and fall down and hit their knee. Aha, they've got the wisdom now. They're going to keep their shoes tied because they tripped and fell over their shoes and they hurt their knee a little bit, right? That's what you need to do in some cases. And if you're not attached to your child and you can step back and kind of let them experience some of those harms, those things are there to teach them. 
and then gradually they start learning you know mom's pretty smart she told me to tie my shoes and i didn't do it and look what happened i've got a little bit of blood on my knee now ah okay maybe i'll start listening to mom more but if you just kept trying to force them and force them and force them and you know with aggression or hostility this is going to cause problems in your life so that's just a little bit of advice but when we get into chapter 15 then i'll share a lot more detail with you unless you guys truly would like to talk about some of this today i think that's great for now david we have a question coming in from denise from facebook earlier tonight when i was out with friends i really had to stop in the middle of the conversation and stay silent and noticed that my mind wanted to get the last word in but i noticed attachment in my mind's ego is that part of the middle way yes that's perfect denise where you observe that that ego that conceit is arising and you're trying to get the last word in and you're trying to prove to people that you're right and they're wrong that's what you do is you cut that off and let it go and you just be at ease and be like you know what i don't have to prove to these people that my opinion is right right your opinion might be right it might not be we don't know right but by you cutting it off and letting it go and just being at ease that's the middle way whereas if you stayed in that conversation and just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and maybe became argumentative and hostile that's where we're now creating unwholesome gamma because our speech is not at the right time it's not true it's it's not gentle it's not beneficial it's not with a mind of loving kindness so where you see that conceit arising when you see that ego arising you cut it off and let it go realizing that yeah the real goal here is to be harmonious and peaceful with all people i don't need to push my way and argue my points and be real aggressive and hostile here so that's what it means to be in the middle is observe these unwholesome qualities that arise in the mind cut them off and let them go and arise this wholesome qualities and sometimes that's just be silent and other times it's other things we have a question from adrian i've been told of a form of meditation where you pose a question and then during meditation keep on bringing the mind back to the question and as meditation progresses the answer comes to you is this useful when self-reflecting this isn't something that the buddha taught meditation is a dedicated active purposeful training session to eliminate unwholesome qualities and to arise wholesome qualities and the unwholesome qualities that you're eliminating are things like craving desire attachment the wholesome qualities that you're arising are things like mindfulness and concentration so breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation are the two primary forms of meditation that the buddha taught and these are addressing two of the primary problems in the mind in chapter eight when we talk about craving anger and ignorance you understand what the three major problems are in the mind and why there's only two meditations to practice but if you have a certain question that you think about before meditation and you keep trying to answer that question in meditation that means the mind is obsessing that means it's holding on it's craving it's clinging that's what you're trying to get rid of you're not trying to find answers in meditation it's not like what you've been taught maybe in prayer where you're trying to ask for some guidance from a being or something like that meditation is to eliminate the unwholesome qualities and to arise wholesome qualities so if you're contemplating a certain question 
and you're looking for answers. You do that outside of meditation. You do that sitting in a chair. You do that while you're sipping a cup of tea or uh, while you're sitting quietly in a room somewhere. You just think through you know, a certain aspect of your life and a certain question. But that's not meditation. That's just reflecting or contemplating or pondering or thinking through a certain question or a certain aspect of your life. Meditation is actively, purposefully, in a dedicated session, eliminating certain unwholesome qualities and arising wholesome qualities. And one of the primary qualities that we're eliminating is craving, desire, attachment, where the mind wants to hold on to things. So I don't suggest that you do that particular thing that you're talking about. It's not meditation where you have a certain question and you try to ponder it. That's contemplation, that's reflection, that's thinking and pondering. You do that outside of meditation. In meditation, with breathing mindfulness meditation, you focus on the breath, and any time the mind is off the breath, you cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath. This is going to arise mindfulness, concentration, and it's going to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. Speaking of meditation, when we're practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, is that essentially a way of practicing the middle way? It does bring the mind to the middle because remember that eightfold path is the middle way. So anytime you're practicing any aspect of that eightfold path, you're bringing the mind to the middle. So with meditation, you're actually practicing all eight steps at one time. But particularly as I talk about breathing mindfulness meditation, you're arising and cultivating this awareness of mind or mindfulness. You're arising this concentration by practicing singleness of mind, focusing on the breath, and you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment. So that is practicing the middle way because you're practicing right view in that situation where you have the right view when you're practicing meditation. You know that you're the problem. You know that your mind is the problem or else you wouldn't be meditating. Now, at other times in your day when people are making you angry, you might be blaming other people for your anger, but at least while you're meditating, you know what the real problem is. Because if the problem was everybody else, then your goal should be to force everyone in the world to meditate because you're already perfect. So that would be wrong view. But if you have right view, when you're meditating, you have right view because you know the problem is your own mind and you're accepting responsibility for this. You understand that the cause of discontentedness is craving, desire, attachment. And to eliminate discontentedness is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. So you've got right view at that moment. Then you're also practicing right intention, which is practicing renunciation, practicing non-ill will, and practicing harmlessness. So when you're meditating, you have the intention of letting go. You have the intention of non-ill will. You have the intention of harmlessness. You have right speech because you're not actually speaking at all during meditation, right? So you're not causing any harm through your speech during meditation. You have right action. You're not causing any harm through your bodily actions because you're sitting, you're standing, you're lying, or you're walking. You're not causing any harm to other beings during meditation. You have been practicing right livelihood, perhaps. So you've got your right livelihood. You're practicing right effort at the time of meditation. You're actively applying effort to eliminate unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities. You're practicing right mindfulness, awareness of mind, becoming aware of those four foundations of mindfulness during meditation. 
and you're practicing right concentration, which is singleness of mind, focusing on the breath and a rising focus and clarity of mind and really developing this concentration. This is one of the reasons why breathing mindfulness meditation is so profound and something as short as 10, 15 minutes can even have a little bit of benefit. But when you get up to 30 minutes and beyond, this is where the real significant benefit comes. And you can observe it. If you're doing meditation in the way that the Buddha taught, you can observe, wow, now that was a strong dose of meditation. It's like taking a, a potent pill. When you've got everything dialed in and you're really focused on your breathing mindfulness meditation, but you're not craving it, but you're not complacent about it, but you're really focused in on it and you get done with your session, it's like, oh, wow, that was quite profound. And that's because you're practicing the entire Eightfold Path all at one time, which is the middle way. And now what you do with that training that you've been doing in meditation over a consistent long-term period of time is now you take that practice of the Eightfold Path and you apply it in daily life. You can't meditate all day long. That's not possible. But you can practice right view all day long. You can practice right intention all day long. You can practice right speech all day long. You can practice right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration all day long. And when you get your practice up to the point where you are practicing these things to perfection all day long, then this is where the mind can be at ease and be peaceful and it's in the middle because now you're practicing the Eightfold Path all day long, not just in meditation, but outside as well. Would you say that mindfulness is a particularly important part of walking in the middle way? Because it seems that without mindfulness, we wouldn't really know if we were in the middle or off from it. Yes, mindfulness, as the Buddha said, is always useful. If you think of mindfulness generally as awareness of mind, which I'll expand for you, in the Pali Canon in English program, what the four foundations of mindfulness are and how to really practice those, or probably uh, maybe towards the end of this program, I might kind of get into that a little bit more. But if you think about mindfulness as awareness of mind, knowing that it's actually the four foundations of mindfulness, but you just practice it as awareness of mind and just being aware of the mind and what's in the mind, any unwholesomeness or any wholesomeness, any discontentedness, or any healthy mental states, being aware of the mind. You need to develop this more and more and more where you're just always aware of the mind because you wouldn't be able to purify this mind and clear out all this pollution if you weren't aware of the unwholesomeness. And you wouldn't be able to cultivate these wholesome mental qualities if you weren't aware. Oh, wow, I just practiced loving kindness. Let me do that more. Or, oh, wow, I just practiced generosity. Uh, or I'm feeling like producing and practicing generosity. Let me practice generosity. That's where mindfulness comes in. So the Buddha talks about mindfulness being useful all the time. When you hear people talking about mindfulness, they will typically be using it as careful. They'll say, carry this glass carefully. Or they'll say, carry this glass mindfully. It's essentially the same thing. They're misusing and misunderstanding the word mindful in the way that the Buddha used it. He used it in terms of awareness of mind. So if you understand what awareness of mind is, then you can practice it all day long. People are also misunderstanding what meditation is. 
Meditation is this dedicated, active, purposeful training session where you're either eliminating certain qualities or you're cultivating certain qualities of mind. And some people not knowing that definition and understanding that where it's a dedicated, active, purposeful training session, they think when they're walking their dog, they're meditating or when they're driving the car, they're meditating or when they're reading a book, they're meditating or when they're gardening, they're meditating. This isn't meditation. This is gardening. This is reading a book. This is walking your dog. This is driving. That's what you're doing in those situations. But while you're in those situations, you can be practicing mindfulness. This is what people need to understand is that you're not meditating all day long. What you're doing is you're practicing mindfulness all day long, that while you're gardening, you're aware of the mind. That if you observe any unwholesome qualities come into the mind while you're gardening, you apply right effort and cut those off and let them go and arise wholesomeness. Or while you're driving, if you observe any unwholesomeness come into the mind because you're practicing mindfulness, awareness of mind, you cut that unwholesomeness off and you arise wholesomeness. Okay, go ahead. You can go in front of me or you see somebody needing to cross the street. You maybe stop and you let them cross in some situations. In other situations, maybe you didn't notice them until it was too late and you just go on past. You're not going to be able to stop for every single person that you see. It wouldn't be safe in all situations, depending on where you see them. So if you understand what meditation is, is this dedicated, active, purposeful training session where you're actively training the mind to eliminate unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities, and you understand this practice of mindfulness or awareness of mind, then you understand this meditation is happening two or three times a day for 30 minutes or longer. But this mindfulness, that's happening all day long, all your waking hours. You're always aware of the mind. And anytime you see unwholesomeness, right effort, cut it off and let it go. Anytime you see wholesome, you try to support that. You try to encourage that. You, you, you don't allow it to fade and continue to develop your practice more and more. Without mindfulness, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. Without meditation, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. But as important as these two things are, that's not the only things that you need to get to enlightenment either. You need things like right view, right intention, right speech, right action, the whole entire path. Thank you, David. Let's turn it over to Vasan now. Thanks, James. I have a question from T. She says, should we forgive ourselves to get angry at some point and then slowly calm down and change our mind into the middle way? Or it is unacceptable to get angry in the practicing of middle way journey? It's the first one, T, that if you notice that you get angry or frustrated or irritated, you need to let go of that. You need to forgive yourself that, yeah, you're a work in progress. You're not perfect. Uh, you're a work in progress. But the fact that you don't like the fact that you were angry, your mind dislikes that you were frustrated, this is actually really good. The Buddha called this moral concern, that the mind has this moral concern that it's not practicing the right way in life. Or the Buddha also called this a moral wrongdoing, that the mind is aware of its wrongdoing. It's aware morally that it's doing the wrong things. And it has this moral concern. I have this concern that I'm angry. I have this concern that I'm frustrated. I see the wrongdoing and I don't like this and I would like to improve it. So now let me work to improve it and get better and better at it. 
rather than what you talked about on the second part, which is like, you know, this is unacceptable. You're a horrible person, yada, yada, yada. That's where the mind beats itself up and has all this negative self-talk really degrading and diminishing the mind. You're not interested in allowing the mind to do that. It's probably going to do it still because it's used to doing that. But you've got to gradually let go of that and realize that that's not what the middle way is. The middle way is recognizing when you're not practicing the middle way, recognizing with this moral wrongdoing, acknowledging the fact that, yeah, I didn't practice well here. And then have this moral concern that, yeah, I would like to improve this. And this is something I would like to work on. And now just actively take steps to improve it rather than beat yourself up about not being perfect today. Your goal isn't to be perfect today. Your goal is to gradually work towards perfection over multiple days. And when you see where your practice isn't fully practicing the middle way, the Eightfold Path, then you observe that and then you work to improve it. Well, uh, when observing that the mind is attached to something, is it okay to be firm and serious in eliminating this attachment or this is this go against uh, uh, practicing the middle way? You can be dedicated, diligent towards eliminating these craving desire attachments but if you sometimes take yourself too serious, this can lead to craving desire attachment. But also, again, if you were lackluster and complacent, then you're not going to see improvement either. There are times on this path where I would become very, very serious and I would be angry at myself for being angry. <laughs> right? <laughs> you're just like discontent that you're discontent. Right. And then there would be periods of time where I would observe that. and I'd just be like, what are you doing, you silly mind? Like, stop being angry that you're angry, right? And you just kind of laugh at yourself. And I would go sometimes two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, kind of like being angry at myself, being frustrated that I'm not perfect yet. And then at some point, something would click in the mind. I'd be like, oh, you silly. You're taking this too serious. Let it go. Like, of course, you're not perfect today. You're still working on it. Allow yourself to work. Allow yourself to breathe. Allow for the imperfections. That's where the real wisdom is. When your mind is struggling and having the most difficulties, that's where it's doing the most work. That's where you can gain the most wisdom because you're down there in the trenches. You've got your sleeves rolled up. You see all these problems. You've got the hood of the car opened up. You've got all the oil all over your hands. You've got wires going everywhere. This is where you learn the most of trying to put this car back together. The same thing with the mind, when you're down there struggling and you're feeling difficult and you feel so serious and you're just beating yourself up, sometimes you just gotta like snap out of it and just start laughing at yourself. Have a real good laugh about, look how much craving, desire, attachment is in this silly mind, that it's discontent because it's discontent. And just laugh and just have fun with it. and shake yourself out of it and move the mind in the direction of being content and joyful by sometimes just laughing at yourself and not taking yourself seriously. But don't allow that to slack off where you're just completely complacent either. So find that middle way where you're not super serious all the time, but you're also not complacent either. So acquiring wisdom to eliminate ignorance will always need the mind to be in the middle. Yes, in order to get to enlightenment, the mind will have to find the middle and it will have to reside there. 
the way to think about this is think about it as a groove, right? If you had a, a flat piece of wood and you had a groove down the middle of the wood, well, your mind's going to get into that groove at certain times and it's going to feel really peaceful and content, but then it's going to slip out of that groove and that's where you're going to feel the discontentedness. But then you're going to be able to bring the mind back into the groove and ah, there's that groove. And then you feel the joy and you feel the peacefulness there. Oh, that feels really good. But then it's going to slip out again. And that's because the mind isn't well trained to stay in that groove all the time. Once the mind is enlightened, as you work towards enlightenment, you'll get these longer and longer periods of time where the mind is in the groove, but it'll slip out and it'll slip out. And then you'll also overshoot the groove sometimes as well. But when the mind is in the groove, take note of that and observe how that feels. Feel the peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy when the mind's in the groove and take note of that. And that's essentially one of the other things that's happening when you're doing meditation, whether it's breathing mindfulness meditation or even walking meditation, which I just recently released a video on walking meditation. When you're doing those meditations, the mind is coming into the middle more and more and you feel that peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy and you get used to feeling what that middle feels like because you're trying to cultivate that middle way more and more through meditation through every single one of your sessions. And the mind gets used to feeling and observing what this middle is. So then in daily life, when the mind is not in the middle, you become aware of it sooner and sooner, and you can bring the mind back to the middle easier and easier. And it can reside in that middle for longer and longer periods of time. But if you're not meditating, you're not going to be able to observe where that middle is. It's not gonna be as clear to you. So when you're meditating, observe that middle, observe the peacefulness, even if it's just 30 seconds, but you're going to expand that more and more and then try to maintain that outside of meditation, which you're not going to be able to do right away. It's going to take you a life practice to develop where you can reside in the middle for longer and longer periods of time. Thanks, teacher. And no more question. Okay. Any questions from you, James? Well, I had a follow-up to Basson's question. I was just wondering, when we're walking the middle way, is that essentially the feeling of enlightenment or is that an oversimplification? Yeah, you can think of it that way. That's when the mind is in the middle, that's going to feel peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. The mind's going to be at ease. It's not going to feel any struggle or any difficulties. Everything's going to feel light. And you know, ah, there, there's the middle. It's almost like the mind breathes. It's like, ah, that feels wonderful. But because practitioners are on the way to enlightenment, the mind's going to slip out of that middle. So you might feel it for a couple of minutes or a couple of hours or a couple of days or a couple of weeks. It's not like a light switch where once the mind's in the middle, it's just going to always stay there from the beginning. But as you get more and more familiar with this middle, through meditation, through outside of meditation, when you observe the mind's not in the middle and you pull it back, then you get these longer and longer periods of time where the mind is in the middle. And with the mind being enlightened, it is practicing the middle way and it's completely at ease, completely peaceful. And you'll see these extended periods of time where you'll get longer and longer periods of being in the middle. And then, you know, when you're a year, two years, three years, 
you haven't experienced any discontentedness whatsoever, then you know, okay, the mind's probably enlightened. But as I've said before, you're not interested in convincing yourself that the mind is enlightened because that's when the arrogance kind of kicks in and the pride kicks in. And as soon as that stuff kicks in, the mind's not enlightened anymore. So even when you go a year, two years, three years without any discontentedness, you can just smile and you don't have to go around and tell people you're enlightened. You're not going to have the desire to do that because if someone's going around with a desire to tell everyone, oh, I haven't had discontentedness for two or three years. This is the arrogance. This is the pride. The mind's not enlightened. So one of the easiest ways to tell someone is not enlightened is that they will tell you that they are enlightened. And for you in your own practice, when you're in that middle way, it's so peaceful. It's so calm. It's so serene. It's so content and it's so joyful. You don't have a desire to go out into the world and force things on people. You don't have a desire to argue or be argumentative. You don't have a desire to be proven right. You don't have a desire to tell other people what you've accomplished or what you have accomplished. You just peacefully go about your life with wisdom and a smile, being satisfied with what is, being content and peaceful. I thought I would ask a final question in regards to a quote in the book. You mentioned that there may be no other teaching that is so simple, but that will have more impact on a person. And I was just wondering if you can speak to the power of the middle way and what is it about it that really makes it so powerful in our lives? Yeah, the middle way to me is just such a simple teaching is that, you know, we don't want to hold things real tight, but you don't want to hold things real loose. That's really simple. You know, find this middle way. When the string is too tight on the instrument, it doesn't play beautiful music. When the string is too loose, it doesn't play beautiful music. Okay, that's the simple teaching. Well, now, anytime you feel the mind is pressured or stressed or feel struggled or you feel difficulties, it's because the mind's not in the middle. Just look for the middle. So if you're stressing out about any particular thing, it's because the mind's not in the middle. And you just look at that and you're like, okay, I'm stressing out about fixing the car. The car's broken. I know I got to go to work tomorrow. I'm not sure if I can get a battery in time to get to work on time. And the mind is just stressing about that. Well, that's because you're holding on too tight. Now, instead of holding on and just obsessing about this battery that you don't have for the car and you're not going to be able to get one until 9 a.m. when the stores open instead of obsessing over the battery think about what is the solutions here to bring this to the middle how can I solve this okay maybe I need to call my boss tonight maybe I need to call my friend tomorrow in the morning whoever I'm meeting with or wherever you're going just start making decisions to notify people that, yeah, I'm going to be late or I'm not going to be able to show up on time or I'm not going to be able to bring my kids to school on time or whatever it is. So rather than sit there stressing about all the things that can go wrong and that will go wrong, that's not the middle way. That's the mind holding on too tight. So just find the middle. What are the decisions you need to make in order for the mind to be at ease and be comfortable and not have this struggle and difficulties? Or if you're struggling with finances and you're finding that you get to the end of your month and you don't have the money that you need in order to fulfill the certain obligations and things that you need in life. Wherever you notice that, you notice the stress, the anxiety, you 
keep stressing. You get to the end of the month and you don't have the money that you need. Well, here, you know that the mind's not in the middle. So what you do is you start looking at, well, what do I need to do? Let me adjust some expenses here. Do I really need to be going to the movies? Do I really need this big mobile phone plan? Can I cut that back a little bit? Because I don't really talk on the phone that much anyway. Do I really need to go shopping for clothes? Can I cut that back? Do I really need these certain types of foods and going out to restaurants? Can I cut back my food a little bit? You know, you start looking at things to adjust in order to bring your decisions to the middle. So while we talk about the middle way in terms of the mind and training the mind to the middle way with the eightfold path, what you can also do is you can apply the middle way to all your decisions, whether it's expenses, whether it's time to spend with your family or friends, your children, what have you, whether it's about certain aspects of your life, wherever you notice that the mind is struggling, you know that the mind's not in the middle. So just take a step back, take a breather, and look at what is it going to take to bring this situation to the middle where I don't have to sit here and struggle. I don't have to be upset. I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to have all of these discontent feelings. I can just make some decisions to bring this thing to the middle. Another way that you might think about it is if you've got a ship that you're driving and the ship is veering off course headed towards an iceberg and you see that iceberg in the distance, you can make decisions to kind of bring this ship back to the middle and bring it on course. Rather than keep plowing ahead, getting fixated on the iceberg and crash into the iceberg, and we know what happens when that happens, right? The ship sinks and lots of people die. Rather than get fixated and obsessed about the iceberg, just realize that, okay, I can turn this ship and I can move it back to the middle. And what are the decisions that I need to make in order to bring this ship back to the center? And oftentimes it's going to be more than one decision. And if you're practicing singleness of mind where you're just doing one thing at a time, then you should be able to gradually make one decision at a time to gradually bring the ship back to the middle where now, aha, there's the middle. That feels better. Ah, nice and peaceful. So no matter what aspect of your life that you're having difficulties with, no matter what the situation, no matter what the circumstances, just find the middle way by observing that the mind is not in the middle. It has discontentedness. And now what are the decisions I need to make to bring this to the middle where the mind can be at ease? We have a question that just came in from T. To keep our mind bent to the middle way, should we notice our words, our body language, our breath, our facial expressions, our gesture, or our physical manifestation? All of that stuff is very helpful. If you're noticing that you're sad all the time, or you've got a really harsh look on your face, or something like that, then that's because the mind is producing that, right? If you're observing those facial expressions or certain gestures or all those things that you mentioned, those are all indications that things are not well in the mind because the physical body is just a representation of what's going on in the mind. If someone has a smile, if they're cheerful, if they're bright, if they're open-eyed, if they're bright-eyed, then we know that, okay, the mind is performing well. It has joy. It's 
peaceful. But if there's this disgruntledness, this anger, this frustration, then the skin's going to be darker. It's going to be duller. It's, the face is going to be sad. Uh, there's not going to be the smiling. I remember when I first started practicing this path really well, before that, I was not a person who smiled very easily. I was always sad, angered, and frustrated. When I started practicing this path, my face actually started hurting because I was smiling so much. And I wasn't used to smiling. And there was actually muscles in the face that I think I probably didn't use for a good portion of my life because I wasn't a person that smiled very easily. So when you start having this mind that is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, you should notice that there's more smiles that are occurring. And going to something that James usually says that he hasn't said yet is the fake it until you make it approach, right? Is that even now, if you feel disgruntled and you feel angry or frustrated in certain situations, even if you can kind of convince the mind and the body to smile in certain situations, even inside, something's eating you up. You're so discontent but you can be quietly discontent, but instead at least put a smile on the face. This practice can gradually change the mind that even though you're quietly frustrated, it's better to be quietly frustrated than overtly aggressive and hostile and discontent. So if the mind is aggressive and hostile and overtly discontent, then you're going to create harm in the world and that harm is going to come back to you. But if you can at least cut that down, where now maybe you're quietly frustrated, you're quietly agitated, but at least you put a smile on the face, this will gradually transform the mind. And James calls this fake it until you make it. So if you can do that more and more and more, you'll start seeing that the smile will become more natural and that it'll start gradually changing the inner mind. Thank you, David. Is there other questions for today? All right. Well, thank you all for joining for today's class. As I mentioned, this is a very simple, simple teaching. And the more you think about it, if you read the book, if you listen to this talk, if you ask questions about it in the Facebook group or in personal guidance or any of the other ways that I offer to give you private guidance and help and assistance as you seek guidance, Understand the middle way and, and start applying it in your life and start observing situations that are real difficult and feels like all the gears have just locked up. Just figure out how to bring things to the middle. And the more you apply this and practice, it'll become easier and easier. And you can find the middle in all these different aspects of your life. And then it just becomes really simple and effortless. The more that you're practicing these teachings, you can just observe that the mind just is such at ease because you know how to make these decisions really easily because you've had enough experience of making decisions and having mistakes and seeing that they didn't turn out well. Now you've got wisdom of how to make a better decision next time. So those mistakes that we make in life are actually a way for us to learn wisdom. And then as we learn from those mistakes, then we learn to not repeat them. Next week on Sunday, we're going to be in chapter seven, which is the five precepts. Here, I'm going to be going through the five precepts in detail using the words of the Buddha. If you've learned the five precepts in the past and you heard that the Buddha taught no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying and no intoxicants, 
you haven't studied the words of the Buddha as it relates to the five precepts because the words of the Buddha and what he actually taught are much more illuminating than this. This simple way of describing the five precepts of no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying and no intoxicants, this doesn't give you what you need in order to fully practice the five precepts. So I'm gonna share with you the words of the Buddha and what he actually spoke as a way of teaching the five precepts. And then we're gonna go through aspect by aspect using different examples in life to help you understand how to apply this particular precept to various aspects of life today. So we're gonna go through that on Sunday. If you'd like, you can read the chapter before class, after class, or before and after class. That will really help you as you come to class and actually seek guidance. If you're able to do that, it will really improve your practice and understanding of the content. On Wednesday, we're gonna be in our second class of our four-part series, Learning Buddhist Chanting. This past Wednesday, I did the very first class of Buddhist chanting. This class, we're going to now go through the chants again as a group, and we're gonna chant together multiple times, ramping up our practice so that you can get better and better and more refined at actually doing your chanting. And for those of you guys that would like to, you can get some private coaching during the actual class where if you're in Zoom, you can come into Zoom and you can actually do some chanting and I'll help you along. And if you're having trouble with shyness, this is a perfect opportunity for you to come into Zoom and actively practice not being shy. Because if you keep being shy, the mind's discontent and it's not gonna be able to break through the wall. So if you find that you feel like shy and you don't wanna participate, you don't wanna chant, okay, that's your choice. But if you would like to apply right effort to eliminate unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities, this is a perfect opportunity for anyone who is typically shy to come into Zoom and actually do some chanting with your mic on where we can hear you and this will help you break through the wall of any shyness that there's nothing that's gonna hurt you. You can let go of any kind of fear related to doing public speaking or chanting in public or any of these other things. You can just let that go and just have fun because you're in a supportive environment and we're all gonna be very supportive of you. So I'll see you either this Wednesday for Buddhist chanting or next Sunday for the five precepts. In the meantime, have a lovely rest of your day Thank you for joining class and we'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.